This is the Spark Podcast, a bi-weekly show where we explore the creativity, technology, and business of CG. I'm your host, Marina Antunes. In 2004, Sean O'Reilly achieved one of his lifelong goals. He self-published his first comic book, and Arcana Comics was born. Cade didn't only do well, it made a profit, and 16 years later, Sean is still at it, now leading Canada's largest comic book publisher with over 350 titles, many of them sprung from Sean's own mind. The comic book writer turned publisher is now also at the helm of an animation studio, producing television series and films based on the studio's IP. I recently caught up with Sean and we had a chance to discuss his passion for comics, his creative process, and how his love for technology has shaped and continues to shape the direction of Arcana's growth. Where did the passion for comic books start? Uh, misspent youth. <laughs> I was, a, I was uh, an only child, still am an only child. Uh, and when I was younger, uh, comic books kind of were my, my jam. I remember going to the Husky gas station and purchasing Secret Wars number four, and it absolutely blew my mind. I read it, uh, then I went back to the Husky, then I realized there's these things called comic book stores, and uh, that was about it. I was probably, I think, seven. Um, Very exciting. And honestly, it always stuck with me, and I had never in my life considered it a career or a job or anything. Um, I was kind of, you know, uh, I went to SFU, Simon Fraser University in British Columbia, um, with a, uh, going for a bachelor of science with a major in physics and biology. Uh, I dropped the physics part year two, did my biology, realized I hated lab work, um, went to teaching, got my degree and, uh, yeah, I taught. And in the background, I just always had the passion for comic books and, and, well, no, I think I was probably, I can't remember now, probably about 30 when I did my very first comic book and um, printed it, produced it, got my money back. I broke even. Yay. And uh, it meant I got to do another one and another one. And so we've now done 300 graphic novels, publishing, printing them. And uh, yeah, then it led into animation. So it's been kind of a, a, a baby steps, lots and lots and lots of baby steps. Wow. So, I mean, t- t- let's talk a little bit about this decision to, to try your hand at actually doing a comic book, because I think most people would think, well, let's do this comic book. Let's find somebody to print it for us and publish it and whatever else. But you jumped in like feet first, head first. You thought, well, I'm going to do this whole thing myself. How did that come about? And like, where, where, did, they, where did you even get that idea? <laughs> <laughs> it was a uh, necessity is a mother of invention, right? So there was a company, I think they're still doing good, uh, Digital Webbing. I had an idea for my comic book character, Cade. Uh, I submitted it to Digital Webbing and I got my rejection letter. And it's not like I'm getting, and I love Digital Webbing, no disrespect, but it's not like I'm getting a rejection letter from Marvel. I'm like, hey, they're a big company. They're not that big. And I'm like, well, maybe I can do what they're doing. And so I went to Comic-Con, the San Diego Comic-Con in 2002, and I went as a total fan and I just asked a lot of questions. Where do you get your printing done? How do you do this? Where do you do this? And um, took all that information, came back to Vancouver and uh, started doing it. So I worked with uh, 
Ramsey's Melendez. Uh, we were in line together at Comic-Con chatting away. I was a writer. He was an artist. I was like chocolate and peanut butter. And so we got an issue ready. Um, someone recommended the printer Transcontinental. So we used them. Uh, believe it or not, because I've paid for every bill the hard way, I, I remember every painful invoice and receipt I got. So I think that was $3,500 to print 5,000 copies of comics. Um, so per price point, it's actually not bad. You're paying about 70 cents per comic. Um, but the thing is you need the volume. Mm -hmm. And so I think we sold 3,500 units on Cade number one. And, uh, that was our initial PO. And then we got, um, more to be honest with you. And, and so the first one all in literally $0, and then kind of did two and three. And I, I never envisioned becoming a publisher necessarily. I didn't envision becoming a animation studio. It was just, I was passionate. I, I was forced to take mitigated risks. We never had, you know, an investor and I don't come from a lot of money. So it was just kind of making do with what I have. And I had to stare at my financials as much as I had to stare at the creative and just kind of one foot in front of the next. Uh, I'm curious about the name Arcano. How did the how did the name come about? Uh, Ramses and I, believe it or not. Um, so Arcana means like you know the arcane, the mystic, the magic, and and for me, I still believe in that because you know you'll have the best laid plans, and somehow like you know there there is movie magic. It does happen when all the stars align and everything works, and uh, there's still that special ingredient somewhat that you know, makes movies unpredictable. Joker just blew up last year. Other movies that have lofty expectations fall very short. Um, you know, it's kind of, there, there's still that element of surprise and magic in there. Uh, I'm curious, um, you know, even looking back, I was looking at some interviews from like the early 2010s, I think it was. And even then you were already talking about social media and the importance of sort of uh, delving into those tools and using them. And it seems to me like you're always, you've always got your finger on the ball of the next big thing. And you're always, you know, trying to be there ahead of everyone else, which I think is one of the reasons Arcan has done so well. And I'm curious, how do you kind of look at the... I'm wondering, one, are you an early adopter? And two, how do you kind of look at the, the all of these tools that are becoming uh, available all the time? Like there's a new thing constantly. How do you kind of gauge what you think you're going to, you know, dip your toe into and invest your time in? And how do you select the ones that you do and the ones that are left behind because they just aren't going to work or don't fit? You're almost like predicting the future, which I think is so impressive. Thank you. Uh, I, I like, I mean, there's a couple of components to it. I think I'm a bit of a geek at heart. Um, so I, it somehow reminds me of like Phil Dunphy or whatever. Anytime there's something kind of cool or weird or, or nerdy, I like to dive into it, look at it. Um, we used um, facewear uh, with headgear to do all of our lip sync and go fish. Um, no one knew, no one commented. Uh, it was, it was pretty good. We, we tried about four or five years ago. I used the Xsense suit for motion capture. Um, relatively, I think why I would consider myself an early adopter, especially towards production, the, the risk you take, the financial risk and time, uh, is relatively small to the rewards it can give you. Um, 
Go Fish as an example with the uh, the lip sync mocap, it it cut our our lip sync time in uh, about half to a third. Like it literally saved us months of labor. I don't know if you can do it with all productions. With Talking Fish, it definitely worked. Um, with maybe something in more of the live action realm or something that's a little more realistic, maybe not. Um, but yeah, I've, I've always like like right now. So back in the day, it was print on demand. I was one of the first to take that on, and you know we would do a print run of fifty. Uh, as I mentioned at the beginning, five thousand was the minimum amount of books you could print when I first started. Mm-hmm. Um, then all of a sudden, it could be print on demand was expensive. The cost per unit for a graphic novel went up to like you know eight bucks, um, and and then you sell them for fifteen. So you're kind of you're all, you almost almost cannot make a profit on day one, but you can fulfill short orders as opposed to having too much capital invested and massive print runs and storage and all that other stuff. Uh, currently, we're looking at virtual productions. Um, you know, The Mandalorian, the the making of it with the volume is what it's called. The 270 degree um, LED backlit wall was just, it's awesome. And so I've been spending a ton of my time on virtual productions. Arcana has been doing fantastic in animation. It's very slow to fuel my creative desires. I'm wanting to get into live action. And so for me, it's this middle ground of, you know, animation meeting live action and using a lot of the same tool sets. I'm I'm curious also one of the things that you've been talking about for it seems forever is this idea of virtual integration and I think it's so fascinating because there's always all this talk about you know intellectual property and you know creating your own characters and keeping ownership of those characters and those worlds you know, to fuel basically your business. And this is something that Arcana has done from the very, very beginning. And it seems so forward thinking to me. <laughs> so how, how did this, like, how did this even become a thing for you? Um, thank you. Uh, for me, it, it's been, honestly, it's been, it, the, the starter wasn't necessarily uh, money or, or any of that stuff. The starter was truly passion. Like, cause I'm coming from comic books, comic books generally are very character uh, story driven. So you'll have your Spider-Man, you'll have your Batman. And then from there, 10,000 stories can take place. Uh, a story like up is, is definitely more story driven. Um, it's about where the person are in that moment in their life. And they're going through a major, you know, coming of life or, or fish, uh, fish out of water or whatever the story is. But comic books come from a very character driven place. And for me, that's always been the allure of storytelling, I like to know the characters and what they do and who they're about. Um, and so coming from that, it also tends to allow multiple iterations in storytelling, which is, you know, they call it the franchise, the intellectual property, the evergreen property, another one I love. Uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, I think's going, Seth Rogen's doing it now. And I think, uh, I don't even know, eighth, tenth version of the TV series uh, the movie's getting rebooted again for the fourth time. Um, I mean, that is evergreen. Like, that is the property, TMNT, that will just, it seems like it'll never stop, which is fantastic. And so doing what we do, I, I want to keep, you know, keep our properties alive. Howard Lovecraft, we did a trilogy of movies, um, one, two, three, and they, they do have an overarching storyline. Uh, we're now pitching Miskatonic, which occurs after uh, Kingdom of Madness. 
and go fish. We're now uh, we're in production of a TV series that continues the storyline right after the movie. So for me, that's kind of it's been it's helped financially. It's helped from a production point of view because then you get to reuse a lot of your assets. Um, after th- the third movie of Howard, I think there's only I can't remember eight new characters, uh, which is not a lot of characters for a movie, but it's because we had such a you know such a library of characters. Mm-hmm. The same with Go Fish. I mean, it's relatively simple because we did all the work in the movie. So now you're repurposing your assets for the TV series. Mm-hmm. So I was almost out of pre-production on day one of the TV series. It was kind of cool. That's awesome. Um, uh, you know, we you were talking a little bit about the animation side of things, and I'm curious, when did animation even become a thing for you? Was it just like a natural progression, or was it something that you always wanted to do? Was there a project that you know you thought this will be a great as animation? How did that all come about? Uh, almost the same thing, you know, uh, necessity, mother of invention. Um, I worked with Platinum Studios, uh, publishing all their books from 2007 to 2010. And so we were, all we did was, uh, print comics, package them and pitch them. And yeah, I learned a lot. And so platinum, uh, claim to fame was, uh, Cowboys and aliens. Uh, it was based on the comic book, um, we pitched it, got it set up at DreamWorks, Amblin, Universal, Paramount. All four came on board. We had also set up Atlantis. That one got produced. Uh, we also set up Atlantis Rising. Never got made. We set up Drunk Duck at Sony. Never got made. What was it there? Oh, Unique at Disney. Uh, they did the acquisition but never made it. And so after doing that for three years, I learned a lot of what I loved. And I also learned a lot of what I didn't love. One of the things that was really challenging was you put all this effort and all this work into a pitch. And even if they say yes, and it gets optioned by DreamWorks, um, that's it. That's all, that's all we can do. The, the ball is now with them. And whatever happens on the DreamWorks side of the fence stays on the DreamWorks side of the fence. And if you can't control the process, you can't control the outcome. And so I think after doing that for a few years, I left Platinum in 2010, I think. And then I started doing that for about a year or two, pitching, pitching, pitching. And then uh, I teamed up with Jay Ogic. And uh, he created a book called Kagagi, which is the Algonquin word for Raven. And him and I pitched APTN. I still have the first video many, many moons ago, and he's pitching it. And uh, we got a yes. And it was a little different because it's not like it's DreamWorks. Because when you pitch a DreamWorks, you get a yes, you're done. That's it. When we pitched APTN, uh, we got a broadcast license and then we had to build what's called a financial structure. And then you have that component, you have this component, you have this component, and you have to build the budget up as opposed to a buyer just green lighting you and everything comes true on one single day. Uh, and all this stuff was just learning continual. I'm still like learning and Googling and talking to people and then lawyers and accountants and I'm at the party and I'm talking, well, how do you do this? I don't understand this. And uh, so, yeah, it kind of, that's how, that's how it started. And we got Kagagi set up in 2012. It aired 2014 and then Pixies did the same thing. I think I sold Pixies 2013 or 14, uh, came out in the theaters, May 2015. And that was the first movie. And then after that, I kind of, you know, we're on production number nine right now. So I've had eight eight movies released in five years, which is very prolific. Um, And so my goal is now to get bigger budgets. 
You know, you say prolific. I, I'm going to jump ahead for a minute because one of the things that I think finds so impressive about you is just how prolific you are just in general. Like the amount of, uh, you know, TV series, movies, comic books, graphic novels that you guys put out is just crazy to me. And the fact that most of it comes from your mind, from your brain, <laughs> is so impressive. So I wanted to dig a little bit into that creative process and um, how that works for you. Like, where do you get your ideas and how do you nurture those ideas? Yeah, all over the map, to be honest. Um, so, you you know, my, my joke is I have 10 plates spinning. So one of them has my dinner on it. Um, I always have, you know, 10, more realistically, 25 pitches. Um I think I've written 15 screenplays that haven't yet been produced. I still pitch those all the time. Uh, and then you never know what's going to kind of kind of connect. Um, I don't know if it's been announced yet. We just got a little bit of development funding for Avner, a short film I, I did with Ran years ago, I think two years ago. And, and so I wrote a screenplay on it. And, you know, that was 2018. And this year it just connects. So a lot of times, like, you know, it's somewhat a numbers game, to be honest with you. It sounds a little disheartening, but if you have 10 pitches going to 10 different things, uh, you got a hundred opportunities and, you know, hopefully one of them pans out. So for me, the creative process starts anywhere. I'll sometimes read an article. Um, there's one on, on digital twins. Uh, I think Samsung released and it was like, Oh my gosh, there's a story in there somewhere. And so my brain starts to unravel and do things. Um, we were at Harrison Hot Springs, which is Sasquatch country. And we're looking at all these cool Sasquatch statues. I'm like, I have to make a Sasquatch movie. Uh, and so it kind of comes from all over the different area. But yeah, um, whatever inspires me, whatever influences me, uh, that's kind of where I, where I go. And what does that look like as far as actually, you know, starting to, to, to put some more ideas behind, you know, this, if you get one idea like the Sasquatch story, how does, how do you progress in developing that into whatever it might be, be it a TV series or a movie or a comic book, a graphic novel? Like, do you write down, do you write things down? Do you talk into a recorder? Do you, you know, have a conversation with someone to develop things? Like, how does that work for you? Yeah, so I usually start off kind of like um, it sounds weird. I, I try and get the overall premise, um, and there's a thing called MINTS. Uh, it's an acronym, uh, and so I've done little you know educational things for high schools and for, for elementary schools and even at universities. And so it's uh, M I N T S, uh, and the first one's the main idea. Um, and so I try and get the main idea. That's where I start. And, and, you know, it's a Sasquatch, uh, banded. Uh, and then that leads me to think of um, just my mind just goes crazy. But like uh, there's a movie called Racing Stripes with a zebra that wanted to be a uh, racehorse. And uh, so I'm like, oh, what if you had an abandoned Sasquatch that want, desired to do something out of a circle? Like maybe snowboarding or, or skiing or whatever. And then I start to kind of put it in and get the main idea locked. Uh, step two in the creative process is the NT in mints which is note taking. Uh, and then from that part, I, I actually, believe it or not, I, I go to Google a lot. I go to Wikipedia a lot. I like to set things uh, that have some sort of reference. Um, you know, like uh, I'm trying to think on that one. Harrison uh, is the name of the character because it's where I was inspired at Harrison Hot Springs. Um, kind of neat to call a Sasquatch Harrison, Harry. 
Um, and so it just kind of develops from there. And then I start Googling like, you know, cryptozoology, who's the first person I ever saw a Sasquatch. Um, and then it, it, as I start to Google around Wikipedia, ideas start to percolate. And then once, and then those I'll sometimes copy links. Sometimes I'll grab an image that's inspiring, uh, maybe a song, whatever it is. And so when I do this, I tell people like wherever it happens, take the notes. And so I actually use uh, Google Keep. And uh, Google Keep is this cool little program. It works on my laptop and it works on my phone and they sync. And so I'll just put in a stupid idea or an idea I have and uh, I'll come back to it later. Uh, and then the last part of Mints is summarizing. So now that I have the main idea, I have my notes either from Wikipedia or from a song or from a fact or from something. Then I have to summarize. And that's kind of when it starts to turn into a little bit more of a narrative uh, I'll start with a paragraph, a synopsis, three-act story. Uh, sometimes it's a couple paragraphs. Sometimes it's a bit of a longer one. And that, for me, becomes intellectual property. It's still loose, but it's there. And then usually I'll commission an artist or I'll – I'm terrible, but I'll do like a little drawing. And, um, yeah, then I, then I have a visual. Then it just kind of organically grows from there. And is it, is is it at that point that you start to think of you know what sort of um, shape that's going to take if it is going to be a graphic novel or a TV show or a film or does totally. it just sort of stay oh okay and so from there like so once I have my summary I can kind of look at it and go hmm what medium would this look um, would and so for us because so the barrier to entry into a movie I find is less than television. Television is where a lot of the bigger companies tend to go. Um, everyone, and so we're, we're, we've done one TV series. Uh, we're on our second and third in production right now. But TV is like, that's, that's a, it's a different game because like you're really focusing on the world. You're focusing on licensing and merchandising. I mean, if it works well, it's Pepper Pig or uh, Paw Patrol. Like they're just absolute monsters and SpongeBob. And it's not like you have to worry about your production value, um, but it is expensive. You're creating a lot of content. And so you'll need, you know, your financial structure, I think, is harder to put together in a TV series than a movie. Um, and so movie, I find, kind of is a little bit easier barrier to entry. And then with regards to graphic novels, I've graphic novels to me are still kind of a break-even scenario. I don't know. Like it, there are some people that make good money off books, but boy, it's challenging. By the time you pay for your printing and your production, it's a tough business. So the ones that greenlight into graphic novels, I usually do it because they're all ages books and they'll act as a pitch tool to help me set up the series or movie. So that's always the ultimate goal is to have something on the other end, not necessarily just the book. Sometimes. I mean, I did a book called Ancient Oak. Um, I wouldn't even know how to, it, it's, it's basically, it's like a, I don't even know, it's an adage. And so it, you know, I don't know how that would ever be a movie, uh, or a TV series. We did it as a YouTube short film on our YouTube channel. It's beautiful. It's nice. Um, it does well, like with libraries and, and bookstores it does quite well, but it, 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 you know, I don't know how that gets, cause it's just not a big enough, meaty enough story. Mm -hmm. um i mean those things do happen you see cat in a hat becomes a movie um but it's a little bit harder to make the translation into feature or series when do you know that an idea is ready to either 
be pitched or to be turned into, you know, a movie or a TV series? Uh, is there like a, a metric, an internal metric that you use that you kind of look at and you go, yeah, this is ready. And are there any tips or tricks that you kind of keep in your back pocket when you're looking at that type of material and Not, making those decisions? Yeah, I wouldn't say in, like to get it to from concept to television. I mean, the, the secret to that success is, you know, I'm selling. If they're buying, we have a deal. Um, in terms of what's ready to pitch, I don't know. It's weird because it always changes. When I was, um, if you asked me 10 years ago, it would have been anything. I, I was in the room when Drunk Duck was optioned by Sony and we had one page of writing and it was the stuff of Hollywood legends. Um, the person was in the room like, okay, we'll take it. Pardon? Yeah, we'll take this. Okay. Did we just get a sale? And I think it's all public knowledge online, but like it was a six figure option against a seven figure acquisition. And we did it from a one page word document and it was the stuff of legends. And so I was like, Oh, you don't need all this stuff. That's how you can do it. That was the exception, the anomaly. Uh, now, honestly, if anything, I've overdeveloped things. I've taken them beyond the point of pitching and it's almost like I'm entering production. And then sometimes that can hurt you because then you'll have certain people go, Oh, but we want to give our notes. I'm like, we'll take the notes, but you've already done so much work. I'll destroy that work. Just come on board. And so it's that fine line. You don't want to overdevelop something because you want your broadcaster or your whoever to have their thumbprints on it. Let them get their creative. And at the same time, if you underdevelop something, they get, you know, I read that Netflix Canadian pitch thing that happened last week. Mm -hmm. Someone told me they had over 6,000 pitches. They were getting 100 pitches every 10 minutes. Uh, they had 3,000 pitches on the final night. And that's why the machine broke or whatever. And they had to accept more. The response was overwhelming. No one apparently predicted their response. I know people that submitted three different projects to them. Um, one was like a one page treatment. The other one was this thing they've done a screenplay on. They've developed like the amount of pitch material. It must have ranged from soup to nuts. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm, I'm curious because, you know, you, you still talk about how it, it's hard to kind of find that medium. Um, do you find like what are there still a lot of challenges that you encounter as you kind of move through this somewhat uncharted territory? Because it seems to be changing all the time. It is. And so, like, you know, you ask anyone a year ago what was most young filmmakers dreams or filmmakers dream large theatrical release. Well, the theatrical model, I don't know what's happening. Like, you know, we'll, we'll be renting Mulan on September 4th with our family. Mm -hmm. um, that's exciting. And, and Black Widow, everyone's waiting, like what's going to happen there. And so the theatrical model is, I don't know, let's just say under review. Um, and so for, you know, right now, you're, you're, it's the SVODs. It's the Netflix, the Hulus, the, the Disney Plus, the uh, Amazon Prime. Uh, it's all those ones that are really kind of dominating the marketplace and, and they've kind of become the, the ultimate place to go to now. And, and where does Arcana fit into that, that picture for you? We are, so like, to be honest, we were one of the 6,000 applicants uh, last week. Um, and so we are, you know, slowly pitching the Netflix and kind of going back to your question, my, my fear is because I've developed these things with a lot of money and time and effort. I don't necessarily want to just email someone cold, 
have them quickly review. Maybe they're at home and their kids running around in the background and they pass on me and it'll be like, Oh God, that hurt. Uh, so instead, um, especially during COVID, I'm kind of waiting in a weird way. It's not like I'm pitching them all the time. I'm developing my pitch and hopefully doing that, you know, one shot, one kill type of thing, just realign, realign, modify, improve. And, uh, I think, so Miskatonic, I think is almost, I think it's almost the best situation it can be in. I don't know if I can develop it anymore. And I've never actually said that out loud, uh, but um, it feels like I've taken it from a development point of view, as far as it can go. Next step needs to be production. I, I'm really curious because I just find it so fascinating that you are so successful and you are still so scrappy. <laughs> and and, and I, it, like, is that just like your natural way of being or, or is it out of necessity? Like what, what's driving you? I think necessity. I mean, I want to do this forever. And so, you know, you want to, you want to put your best. And so it's weird. It's like our, our last movie, Go Fish, uh, did very well. Um, I mentioned beginning, I want to do bigger budgets. And so that means either get better sales. And so to get better sales, you're going to need a bigger worm to get a bigger fish. And so from the development point of view, spend more and, and make it as good as you can. And then hopefully you'll, you'll get better fish. And at the same time, I need bigger budgets and I don't want to necessarily expose or risk our company anymore. There are so many companies that were one and done. They, they bet the farm on something and if it doesn't work out, they're fine. I'm actually really enjoying during a global pandemic. I'm really enjoying life right now and things are very good. And I just want to keep doing what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I like what we're doing. And at the same time, you know, Dr. Phil says, keep doing what you do. You keep getting what you get. So like, while I like doing what I'm doing, I do want different results. I'm ambitious and I would like, you know, more eyeballs is kind of where I'm at. Believe it or not, it's not actually money that's driving me. It's, I just want more eyeballs. So like animal crackers, uh, came out. I talked to Scott Christian Sava this morning. Uh, and that's awesome. Like, you know, that was a huge acquisition for Netflix and, and the movie, finally got released in the u.s and that is cool because now he can say oh animal crackers oh i saw that and so i think the one thing i'm missing is i want that one that either goes viral or eyeballs or whatever and so that's kind of where the the development angle is coming from one of the things that uh, you know also strikes me is that over the years you've worked some, with some amazing creators and i'm i'm curious uh, what some of the highlights have been. I think I can pick one out for sure. And what, what are some that are left that you kind of hope that, uh, you know, at some point you'll be able to work with some of these people? Yeah, I mean, some of the ones, uh, I think it probably happened, I think maybe a bit more in publishing than in animation. Uh, in publishing, I'm very proud to, uh, you know, Mario Gully. Uh, it was our second book we ever did called Ant. Uh, Ant number one went on eBay for over $100 for a $4 comic book. I was in Florida, the comic book convention and this variant cover we did broke a hundred bucks. I'm calling Michelle, my, my wife. I'm like, Oh my God, Michelle, have you seen the price of these things? I got a hundred of them in my basement. Don't flood the market, but put up five right now. And so uh, we kept these things going and we we're selling like comics that cost me 70 cents. We we're selling for a hundred dollars on eBay. And so Merrill Gully, we got him his first professional work. It was a very buzzy comic. Koi Pham, um, awesome artist. We gave him his first professional work. Koi went on. He's now on, on Avengers for Marvel. 
He's one of the top five to ten Marvel artists. Um, Camilla D'Erico, uh gave her her first professional work. She's now like in art galleries. Um, and so it's been neat watching. I don't know. I, I've kind of worked with a lot of people. Chris Gage. Um, I did, uh, I think, his first comic book called Paradox, which became a movie with Aaron Gilbert. And then uh, Chris Gage, my wife and I are watching Daredevil, the, the Netflix series. And it's like, you know, um, executive producer, Christos Gage. I'm like, what? And like I email him like, dude, congratulations. Is that you? That's incredible. It's like having those ones where I've kind of, you know, worked with people on their first things and watch them go off and become monsters. It's been pretty cool. That's so awesome. Um, well, and let's talk about some of these projects that you have upcoming, because it seems to me like you always have, and it, it seems to be a common thing with a lot of independent creators is you always have to have like five or 10 things on the go at once. And you've mentioned that before, but one of the ones that's super exciting and that you've been talking about a lot is Heroes of the Golden Mask. So tell yeah. us a little bit about this project. Sure. Heroes of the Golden Mask is uh, awesome. It's our most ambitious and biggest budget to date. Um, it has a theatrical release in China, which was part of the financial structure, which I've mentioned, uh, from casting, it is going to be our biggest cast by far. Uh, we have announced Christopher Plummer and Ron Perlman are in the cast. There's three more that will be coming up in, in future, um, press releases. Uh, the movie will be done in quarter one, 2021. Um, we're up to 65 people working from home. Um, that was a challenge and like, I just can't believe how fast things changed. We were in France, uh, for cartoon movie in Bordeaux. My wife and I went on Monday, a, um, wine tour in Bordeaux, France on, on Monday, I think it was March 4th. And then they have this thing called cartoon movie, which if anyone in the animation industry ever wants like a big break or to go, I promise you this. I've pitched a lot. Ten plates spinning when it was my dinner. There's nothing on this planet like cartoon movie. I feel like it's a plug. I'm, I'm not intentionally doing this. Uh, you stand on stage. You pitch your idea. And in the audience is probably anywhere from 50 to 150 people, including Netflix executives, Disney executives, small companies, large companies. But they're buyers. Because anytime you're, you're selling your idea, you go to AFM. You're one person with a screenplay in hand and you run around to all these hotel rooms, which are turned into offices, and then you, you go into an office and you have to pitch 50 offices and 30 of them won't even let you in their door. And you have to beg and you have to buy a $1,000 badge just to have the right to get in there. Then the people don't even want to hear from you. Cartoon Forum, you're on stage and everyone listens to you. Anyway, we are there March 7th and then I came home. And then I think Trudeau declared national emergency on Friday, March 13th, Friday the 13th. And we were home days earlier. And then the following week, we had to find a way to get, you know, dozens and dozens of people working from home. It's been so challenging. Um, our numbers are quite where we want them for masks, but the quality, wow, it's easily by bar like three times better than than previous movies you can see it the lighting some of the key talent we've hired um it just looks so much it's it's the same process we've been doing but the end result is so much better and so we're we were on the cover of animation magazine this month which i'm pretty proud of um we did an article with animation magazine so masks uh will be kind of our can of 2.0 this will be our new stuff which i've been wanting to do for a while 
And what do you think is um, kind of feeding that level up for you? I think the desire and the experience and the knowledge. And so like, you know, some of our crew I've had, you know, Gary has been with us since either 2009, 2010. Um, So our senior character modelers, both us for 10 years, it's hard to believe. Um, And that's been awesome. And so, you know, every project Gary gets uh, stronger and more experienced and there's lessons we've learned. And, and so that's been part of it. And, And our core crew has gotten more experience. And then we bring on, you know, veterans that have like incredible IMDBs. Uh, Tony Gaines is the head of our lighting. And so he's, uh, we've been working with him for a while, I think almost a year, eight months or something. And so, you know, he worked on Spider-Man Homecoming and then Far From Home. And you start working with, you know, him and uh, as our lighting and all of a sudden our lighting looks so much better. Um, and, you know, lighting's kind of a major thing in a movie. <laughs> uh, and so all of a sudden your entire movie has better lighting and better uh, lighting direction. It's like, whoa. And so we've been adding some key talent and it's just, it's kind of a one plus one equals three. And yeah, Heroes is looking really good. I'm very proud of it. One of the things that, you know, you sort of allude to and that uh, when I spoke with your wife a while back, she also mentioned is this feeling of uh, just family uh, in your studio environment and how you have had a lot of these artists uh, with you for, you know, multiple projects in a number of years. And at some point, you know, a number of years ago when studios sort of started popping up in Vancouver, you had mentioned that it's really difficult for a small studio to gather talent when, you know, you could be working at an ILM or a Pixar or whatever it is. So I'm really curious about, you know, the fact that you've invested all this time um, and money on your artists. Um, Was that also out of necessity or is it, it seems to me like it's almost more of just you as a person wanting to help develop these individuals and just given the, the the people that you have also worked with that have now gone on to bigger, better things. Yeah. So I I think for uh, me, it's kind of both. It is a little bit necessity. Um, One of the things we did last year is uh, we have, we have blue cross benefits. Uh, Arcana has the highest extended medical and dental blue cross offers in Canada. Uh, and so that was a great tool for us to attract um, certain talents, uh, stuff like I mentioned Toby. Um, Toby came from Disney and, and he's at maybe a different stage of his life and looking for different things. And so, you know, offering people extended medical and extended dental in the animation industry. Um, I don't know how common it is, but I know it's uncommon enough that, you know, that was a big feather in our cap. We also do uh, paid time off. Um, paid vacations. Um, and again, you know, if you're a school teacher, maybe this is commonplace uh, in the industry that doesn't have a union. Uh, these things are, are quite unique. Uh, and so we've used them to attract people because retention was a problem about three years ago. Um, it was challenging to kind of to keep people and all things being equal. Like, you know, there was a, a rigor we had that left us, to be honest, in a lurch. And he left us uh, to go to Sony to work on Spider-Man. And I'm like, is it the money? He's like, no, no. Uh, he goes, if anything, you might actually be paying us more, paying me more. Um, and uh, I'm like, it's not the money. He's like, no, it's literally just having the cachet of working on Spider-Man. And so I was like, ugh. All things being equal, he like he'll rather work on Spider-Man than whatever we were working on at the time. Steam Engines of Oz or whatever. 
And so it's it, that part's challenging because a lot of the industry, they want that, you know, Eternals. That's the new one coming out from Marvel. So everyone wants Eternals on their belt, a little notch. And so they'll, some of them will do so at not quite a detriment to themselves, but they don't care about the money as much. They don't care about the benefits. If I get this credit and I worked on the Eternals, oh, that's all I need. And it's funny because then you talk to other people like Toby and others. They're like, yeah, I've done that. It's good. And, you know, I, I got my credits and it's pretty cool. It helps my resume, but it's also not the end all be all. And so it, it's been an interesting balance. I've learned a lot over the last couple of years, I'll tell you. Um, the other thing I'm curious about is just the diversity that naturally seems to be in pretty much all of your properties. Um, and is that something that just comes naturally to you or are you like sort of on the lookout for these kinds of stories or like how did those, how does that sort of enter, you know, Arcana? I think it's quite organic. Um, like, you know, for us, when it comes to the actual narrative, um, it's whatever also our artists bring into it. Um, because, you know, I don't use Maya, uh, a lot of the look comes from Gary. And so he'll find inspiration from, you know, other, from everywhere really. And, you know, we have quite a diverse, um, you know, staff, uh, from all different ages, from all different walks of life. And so, you know, I, I think it's quite organic in that. And so when we're out licensing or getting a presale, um, I also think, you know, I think a lot of buyers like that as well. And so we're somewhat rewarded for that. Um, so I, I think it's, it's, you know, it's one of those things if, if we went too far one way, um, people buying and licensing might go the other way. And so it's been a very organic area to kind of find us in the middle. And so I, I'm pretty happy with where that is as well with regards to diversity. Okay. So, you know, you're working on uh, mask. What else do you got for us? What's what's coming up? What, what can we look for from sure. Arcana? So we, we completed a short film about six, seven minutes long. It's two scenes of Miskatonic. And so that would be the TV series after the Howard Lovecraft uh, movies. Pilots written, everything's in there. So now it, that, that, that thing is fully developed, as I mentioned, and it's kind of frozen. And it could be frozen for years. It could be frozen immediately. And so we'll look for a distribution partner on that before moving ahead. Go Fish, the TV series, is uh, internally greenlit. We've done 26 uh, episodes of the animatic. We're now looking at final animation. Everything's modeled. So that's a Go Fish TV series. Obviously, Heroes of Gold Mask in full production. Ultra Duck, we did kind of the same type of thing we did with Miskatonic. We have a short film. And uh, Ultra Duck screenplays written, animatics complete. We've even done some voice casting. Uh, and so that project isn't frozen, but I, I'm going slow enough producing it so we can still bring in a partner to have their thumbprints on it. And then My Brother the Monster is the last one in production. And it's a co-production uh, with Gasolina. And they uh, receive money from Imsine, which is the uh, Mexico's CMF. And so it's a true Canadian-Mexican co-production. It's 2D, which is somewhat new for me. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's, you know, traditional animation. And so we've done all the pre-production. We will be doing all the post. And then Mexico is doing the actual 2D animation. And that was my conversation with Sean O'Reilly, the creative driving force behind Arcana Studios.
The Spark Podcast is a production of the Spark Computer Graphics Society. For more about Spark CG and our upcoming events, visit sparkcg.org. We'll be back with another episode of the podcast in two weeks' time.